let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Uh, the entire chapter, well, almost the entire chapter today is what we're going to be looking at, starting in verse 1 through verse 41. It's a lot of verses to read, so with no further ado, I'm going to read the verses, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41, and then I'm going to ask God for His help as we study this passage. Please read along with me, follow along in your Bibles. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were uh, dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every uh, every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear them each in our own native tongue? Parthenians, Medes, Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and on the signs signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs, God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn sworn with an oath to him that he would one 
set, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not say, or for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I want to preach to you this morning, and I want to title my sermon, What You See Is Not What Is. What You See Is Not What Is. Let's ask God for His help as we study Acts 2 and hear His Word. Father, we pray, God, that You would help us hear this Word apply it to our hearts and to our lives. I pray that you would give us ears to hear. Give me a mouth to speak, God. I pray that I would communicate not my thoughts and ideas, but your word truthfully and clearly. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. What you see is not what is. What would the people have seen on this day? Well, they would have seen that Jesus is no longer with them. They would have seen that the one who was crucified is ascended. They would have seen about 120 weak individuals. But what you see is not what is. The, set, uh, the stage is set, uh, the day is Pentecost. Pentecost was a holiday, it was a festival, 50 days after the Passover, the festival of Pentecost. Hundreds of thousands of Jews would be descending upon Jerusalem at this time. It was the renewal of the Mosaic Covenant for them. The stage is perfectly set for God to launch His church into the world as the world comes to Jerusalem for a visit. The day is Pentecost, and people are coming in search of what they've searched for for a thousand years or more, a restorer, the one who's to come that is to be the restorer of God's people, called the Christ or the Messiah. 
Christ is not a last name. It's a title. Messiah. Restorer. They're coming with the question, who might this Messiah be? Who might this restorer be? Who is going to be, finally, the Christ? And our modern society, or postmodern society, or whatever you want to call it, in the same way, looks for a restorer. It was once believed that world restoration would come through education and enlightenment. If people could just be educated, then there would be peace on earth and goodwill to men. If people could just know each other, and if we could create a, a union of nations, and nations could come together, uh, then we could create global peace on earth and goodwill to men. And all of that progress resulted in the bloodiest century the world has ever known, the 20th century. No peace on earth. Who is the restorer? Where is restoration found? Is it in our nation? Is the United States where our hope is to be found? You know, as I saw the events from this past Wednesday, like many of you, I, I had no words. You know, we think of what should I say and just, whew, no words. Um, but there were images that struck me. I think first and foremost as a Christian. I think first and foremost as somebody who believes the Bible to be true. I think as a pastor. So I see images of a noose built outside the Capitol, uh, a Confederate flag alongside the, the U.S. flag. And there in the crowd, a sign that says, Jesus saves. Jesus 2020. A cross. And I wonder, how do these images have anything to do with each other? Shylin, a friend of mine, said on Twitter, he said, we must be clear what Christi Christianity is not as much as we are clear about what Christianity is. And I think it's fair to say that that's not Christianity. And I think it's encouraging this morning to come to Acts 2 in God's providence to see what Christianity is. It has nothing to do with Christian nationalism. It has everything to do with a kingdom of God that is invisible right now visible only in heaven, that will one day crash to earth. It has everything to do with the Messiah in heaven, with the Restorer, who was on earth and has ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. So this morning, I want to, with so many Christians in years before, and the Christians that were here on this day, I want to come with this question this morning, and that is this, who is the Messiah? And then secondly, how do we build our lives on the Messiah? Well, that's what Acts 2 is about. It's kind of funny that we make Acts 2 all about tongues. It's really not about... Tongues is like kind of a side-side item. Acts 2 is actually about who is the Messiah. And how do we build our lives upon him?
Well, let's get into it. Acts chapter 2. Who was the Messiah? First, the Messiah is the one who comes with Holy Spirit power. We just saw last week in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 the promise that the Holy Spirit is going to come and give you power to do what? To testify or to witness Jesus. To witness about Jesus. Well, immediately what happens? The Holy Spirit comes with power so that his people might witness to Jesus. Oh, there are two beautiful images. There's first this image of a rushing wind. I think of Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones. God's breath as a rushing wind coming across this valley and bones spring to life. A rushing wind. Fire, tongues of fire rest above their heads. Fire, I, I, I think of a pillar of fire coming out of Egypt as the, the people of Israel are led out of bondage by fire. A pillar of fire, wind and fire. These supernatural images that appeared before them, which are representations of the presence of God. And then in verse 4, here comes the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and immediately it results in a miracle. The miracle is that the followers, the apostles of Jesus, begin to speak in different languages. It's called tongues here. It, it's literally a term that would have been used for different languages. Uh, now, why would they be speaking in different languages, offering praises to God in languages that they, listen, don't know, because these men are Galileans. They're not linguists. Galileans were actually made fun of historically for the way that they talked because they were uneducated. They talked like a southerner Montreal. <laughs> and Michael White. And who else am I going to go after this morning? No, I'm just playing with you. But, but they had an accent that, that the, you know, the elite would have looked down on, uh, and they were seen as unable to speak. And they are speaking now in 15 different languages. How do I know it's 15? Well, it tells us. Here are the people that, that are present. Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Rome, Cretans, Arabians, all different languages. And these uneducated men are now speaking in every single language. They're hearing the praises of God in their own tongues. Look at verse 8. How is it, they say, that we each hear, each of us in his own native tongue uh, language hears these words? This is amazing. Listen, let's go all the way back to the Tower of Babel. What happened at Babel? There was one language. One language was split into many languages, and the people then were divided from then on into different nations. I think what's happening here is Babel is being reversed. No longer will the people of God be divided by nation, state, by different languages, but rather language will no longer be a barrier for God's people. We're seeing Many who were once one now become one in 
Christ. That's what we're seeing. The gospel is no longer staying in Jerusalem. It's actually a sign, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, against the Jews to say that you have rejected Jesus and now the gospel is going forward into all of these different Gentile languages. Now, uh, it's a crazy scene. It draws this massive crowd. Thousands of people are there. And there are skeptics who, in verse 13, say, they're drunk, which it doesn't make any sense. But when you, when you see something that doesn't make any sense, you just come up with nonsense answers, don't you? Uh, they're, they're drunk. They must be drunk. Because, you know, when you get drunk, you actually start speaking French and Spanish. <laughs> and Paul, or Peter stands up in the crowd, and, and Peter, Peter, he acts as like the mouthpiece for everybody. He, he, Peter launches here actually into a sermon on the spot. But his introduction is a little bit of an apologia. It's a defense. And he says, listen, guys, we're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Well, unfortunately today, 9 a.m. is no reason not to be drunk. But that's another story. It's only 9 a.m. They're not drunk, he says. But let me tell you what's going on. And he launches into this sermon. His, his text, his first text that he chooses is uh, Joel, wonderful book, uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. You don't have to turn there because it's actually quoted right here, verses 17 through 21 in Acts chapter 2. Now, this is an expositional sermon, and Peter just pulls out Joel and exposes the truth to explain what's going on. He says in verse 17, in, in the last days. Now, last days here would be a, a prophetic picture of that final era of redemption, uh, this last day. In other words, we are in the last days, and we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. This, this era that we are in after the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus ushered in, it inaugurated the last days. And so what Peter's saying is, is that what you're seeing played out right now is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, and the new messianic era has now been inaugurated. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. This is, uh, this is to say that there's going to be a new uh, wave of inspiration, a new wave of prophecy. We're expecting now there to be new prophecies that come along. There's going to be a new wave. Uh, there's going to be prophecy. Young men will see visions. Old men dream, dream, dream dreams. No respecter of persons. Even male and, uh, servants and female servants, I will pour out my spirit. Meaning every, in this era, in this messianic era, every single believer is going to be filled with the spirit of God. Meaning there is no non-spirit-filled Christian. But if you are a Christian, you have the spirit of God. God, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs of the earth below, blood, fire, vapors of smoke. Now, just before the day of the Lord, Eric preached on the day of the Lord a couple weeks ago. Think of the day of the Lord as a scene of mountains with multiple horizons. And there's sort of this mountain that's closest to us. That is a fulfillment but there is another mountain in the far distance as the greater fulfillment. So the greater fulfillment is going to be that second coming of Jesus Christ, 
But this Advent, this coming of this first coming of Christ, and the advent of this messianic era is, in fact, a uh, one of those mountain ranges uh, fulfillments of the day of the Lord. On this day, it says, "The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood." That, that reminds us of actually Jesus hanging on the cross, and the sun was blacked out. That's very similar, he's saying, to what Joel had prophesied would happen. And it shall come to pass, listen to this, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, this room is too quiet after reading a verse like that one. Let me try it again. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. Well, that's the text. Now, He goes on, I want to just keep going through Peter's sermon with him here as quickly as we can. So who is the power? First, he's the one that comes with, uh, uh, I'm sorry, who is the Messiah? He's the one that comes with Holy Spirit power, all right? Number two, this is Peter's second point. The Messiah is the one who died. The Messiah is the one who died. Now listen, this same Peter, who denied Jesus Christ on that dreadful and fateful day, now demands that his listeners worship Christ. It was this same Peter who cringed in cowardliness at the name of Jesus Christ, now boldly declares with courage, the name of Jesus Christ. The spineless Peter now has found a backbone as he is empowered by the Holy Spirit to boldly proclaim and be a witness to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth attested to you by God with mighty works, wonders, signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, listen to this. This Jesus, verse 23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Let's pause right there. Jesus died according to God's plan. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't plan B. Jesus wasn't a helpless victim. But it says that God for ordained, or he had foreknowledge. Now, some people say, well, foreknowledge just means that God looks through the tunnels of time and knows what's going to happen. No, that's not what Peter says. He says it happened according to his foreknowledge, which means foreknowledge accomplishes something. We must understand that to be a foreordination. And it lines up with the other word that he uses here, which is the definite plan of God. So Jesus came to fulfill the plan of God. And that was to die. Ah, so we're not responsible for his death? God is responsible for his death? Well, hold up, not so fast. Not so fast. All through the Bible, we see God's sovereignty at play and man's responsibility. Never do we throw one of those out. This was God's foreordained plan, but look at this, the very next words, Jesus died according to the plan of God, but also at the fault of the people. 
He says, you crucified him and killed. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. He's looking, listen to this, at 3,000 people, some of whom may have been there on that day. I am assuming they all weren't there. I'm assuming maybe some of them never even knew this moment happened. He's looking at thousands of people, and what does he say? He says, you killed Jesus. You are responsible for his death. How can these people have Jesus' blood on their hands? Well, I think the hymn that we sing perfectly sums it up, which says, behold, the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Died he for me who caused him pain? For me to him did death pursue? Yes. He hung on the cross for me and for you. Church, the Messiah is the one who died for you. Confucius did not die in the stead of his people. Muhammad did not die in the stead of his people. Haile Selassie did not die in the stead of his people. The founding fathers of America did not die in the stead of their people. But in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. Oh yeah, all flesh is like grass. And its glory fades like the flower of grass. It withers The flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. There is only one Savior in this world, and that is the word of God, made flesh, who lived among us and who died in your place on the cross, who took the judgment that you deserve. And there's an invitation to you right now to come to this Savior, to cling to this Savior, and to see the price of your redemption, to see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. Will you come to Jesus today and grasp a hold of him and say, he is my Savior? Who is the Messiah? He is the one who died. Secondly, The Messiah is the one who rose. Look at verse 24. He immediately goes on. We don't talk about the cross of Christ without talking about an empty tomb, do we? Verse 24, but God raised him up. Look at this, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
It was not possible for him to be held by it. Now, Peter goes on in his sermon with a few more texts to show expositionally what's going on here. He uses reason and logic. He quotes David in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Again, don't turn there. It's right here in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28. And here David says in the psalm, uh, these words, he says, my flesh will dwell in hope. David has this, this uh, inspired word which says that there will be hope for his flesh. Uh, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. His soul will not end up in death forever and ever. Now, Peter goes on to ask this question, who is it that David's talking about? Because he, say, he, he explains to us in verses 29 through 34 that David's grave is right here. Like David is dead. He died. And so Peter's saying, who is it then that David is referring to? Ah, Peter says David was seeing something. He was prophesying of, an answer, or of a descendant that is to come. He was prophesying of another. And he even points this out in verse 35. He quotes yet another psalm, Psalm 110. And he says that David himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until my, I make your enemies your footstool. Meaning, meaning David is saying that there is a Lord of his Lord. Uh, that there is another one that is to come. That he worships. Who is the fulfillment of all of these things. What Peter is saying is that in the psalms we see that there is going to be a resurrection of a descendant of David. And that resurrected one is who? Well, it's this Messiah. He is the one who rose. Now he says that it is not possible for him to stay dead. Look, in our flesh, it is not possible for us to be released from the pangs of death. In our flesh, it is not possible for you to escape death. What does he say about Jesus? Does he say, well, for this one, it was possible for him to remain in the grave, but, boy, he just narrowly escaped it. Does it say it was possible that he could have been swallowed up forever by the pangs of death, but he was just strong enough to pull himself out. Now, he says it was not possible. He was released from the pangs of death because it wasn't possible for him to stay dead. Why is that the case? Well, it's because Jesus is life. You cannot mix life with death. That's like mixing oil and water. Ten times out of ten, the oil comes to the top. You cannot mix life with death. Ten times out of ten, life will rise to the top. He could not stay dead because Jesus was the perfection of life. And so death, therefore, had no claim on Jesus Christ. And so he lives. Amen? 
Well, this is an amazing exposition by the Apostle Peter. He uses in his sermon logic, and he uses reason to show us that the Messiah is the one who comes with Holy Spirit power. The Messiah is the one who died. The Messiah is the one who rose from the dead. And in these dark times, church, this is good news. This is good news for us. I've got good news for you. His kingdom is everlasting. His life endures. His body will not see decay. His office will never be breached. His throne is eternal. His rule is absolute. His reign never ends. That is the king that we have in our Messiah. Verse 36, he sums it up. This is his conclusion. He says, let all the house of Israel know that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That word made right there in verse 36. It means appointed. It's not to say that Jesus was made God or adopted to be the Son of God in some heretical fashion that people have proposed. But no, it's a word that, that means appointed. Jesus was appointed by God through all of this to, to, to be the rightful Messiah. He was appointed to be the Christ, meaning this, he has full right, the eternal Son of God, who's always been the King, who's always been the Lord, through his death, burial, and resurrection, has full right for you to call him Messiah. And if you don't give him what is his right, you are now at fault. That's what he's saying. You bear responsibility now for what you do with Jesus. Church, there are too many people who hear this message, a message very similar to what Peter has declared. In churches all around the world, there are too many people who hear this message week after week after week and remain Utterly unchanged. Oh, we know, how to, we know how to receive information. This is the information age. We love information. We love it. Oh, tell me what you got. I love to hear information. We are bombarded. Let me just think, oh my goodness, even this last week. How many of you just wasted so much time on the media and social media just bombarded with information and comment after comment and opinion after opinion and post after post? Oh yeah, we know how to receive information in, the, in this information era, but do we know what to do with it? Do we know how to make a decision? I would just simply say this. We don't want to make decisions. Because not only are we consumers of information, we are consumers of everything we can possibly consume. And a decision means commitment. A decision means burning bridges and saying, I'm walking across this bridge. That's what a decision is. It's commitment. Well, we don't want to do that. I just, I just went to Walmart yesterday with a box of lights that I bought. And I went back, I didn't even have a receipt. I walk into Walmart, don't want this anymore. They give me money back. 
Do you realize that even the purchases we make, we can kind of go back on that decision? You buy a car, what's the warranty? How many, how many of you have uh, bought an article of clothing and you said, what's your return policy? Because we don't want to commit in our decisions. We even think of marriage this way. Marriage is, you know, something I can opt out of whenever I so choose. There's nothing that we commit to in this world anymore. We don't make decisions. We don't like decisions. We want all of our options open to us. And that is the antithesis of the gospel. The gospel says that you have to burn every other bridge in your life and cross only one. That you have to make a decision on one option and say no to every other option. That is what the gospel requires of us. How many people are standing on the precipice of eternity who refuse to make an eternal decision? Listen, people will forever miss eternity with God, not because they didn't hear the gospel, but because they never took heed to the gospel. And so we see as Peter's sermon comes to a close, that a decision is required. How do his listeners decide? Well, that leads me to my second and final point, and I'll close with this. How do we build our lives on this Messiah? How do they respond? Well, first, number one, they are cut to the heart. Verse 37, now when they heard this, when they heard this, when they heard all that they've done to Jesus, all that they are responsible for, all of their sin, all of their guilt, that he is the Messiah, the one who died, the one who rose, when they heard this, it says that they were cut to the heart. They were pierced in their heart. The first step in coming to Christ is being cut to your heart. It's this moment in which you, you see your life for what it is. You see Christ for who he is. You put your head in your hands, and it's a moment of despair, to be honest. I don't think there's anybody who's ever been converted without first a moment of despair. A moment of weeping. A moment of hopelessness. Oh, if you've never had that moment, I doubt you're a Christian. Cut to the heart, which leads to this question, what must I do to be saved? I've tried everything. I've been a good religious boy. I've done all the good things. I grew up in Sunday school. I try to believe the right things. Oh, but this is not my Messiah. He is not my Christ. I'm cut to the heart. What must I do to be saved? That is the cry of the repentant. That is the cry of the convicted. Secondly, repent and be baptized. This is what Peter says. Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of 
Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That word repent there is just simply an about face. Now let me be very clear here. Repentance is not synonymous with action. Repentance is more synonymous with belief. Uh, the Bible calls new actions fruit of repentance. So we should not think of this as a works-based religion. Very important uh, distinction there. And we know that, let me give you a proof here, it says that as they uh, uh, repented, it says they received his word in verse 41, those who received his word. How do we repent? It's not that you get up and go out of here and do a different action. You repent through what? Receiving the word. Believing. Changing mind. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer trusting in the no longer trusting in everything else means I'm burning bridges. Repent and, and be baptized, every one of you. Now there, there's some confusion here because sometimes people will take this and say, "Well, there, see, you need baptism in order to uh, receive the Holy Spirit." That there there are some people who teach that you are saved through the outward act of baptism. When you go under the water and come out, that that actually is your salvation, and that th through doing that, you receive the Holy Spirit, and they'll point to verse 38 as, as proof of that. Uh, the problem with that first is that the thief would not be in heaven if that was the case, because he wasn't baptized, and Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Uh, another second problem with that is in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 19, uh, Peter says to repent for the forgiveness of sins. And he doesn't include baptism. And so therefore, in chapter 3, verse 19, the same guy says repentance is not part of how you get saved. I'm sorry, baptism is not part of how you get saved. Um, and so then, how does it fit in here? Well, I think this is what he's saying is, is repent and be baptized. Meaning, baptism is the display of I'm no longer with these people, but I'm with these people. I'm no longer with my sin, but I'm with Jesus. That's what baptism displays. It displays repentance, you see? Yeah. I think what he's saying is, is uh, be baptized, or I'm sorry, repent, and as a sign of your repentance, be baptized, showing all that you're basing your life on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what it displays. I think it's what he's saying. And, and every single believer who turns from their sins and trusts in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. What a message this is. What a wonderful, wonderful message this is. The gospel message comes. And it comes with a gospel invitation. And that is this. Receive Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Receive this word today, church. I'm pleading with you right now. Receive this word. Don't walk out of here without a wholehearted reception of this word. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. Yeah, Ezekiel saw a valley of dry bones. That's what he saw. But what you see is not what is. 
What is, is there is a God who has the ability to raise up every single one of those dry bones and to breathe into them new life. The breath of God blew across the valley of dry bones and 3,000 people woke up from the dead. From 120 in one message to 3,000 people rising into an army of people who are about to spread throughout the entire known world from east to west all across the globe. What do you see, church, when you look around? Oh, what do we see when we look around? We see death. We see despair. We see graveyards. We see decay. We see anger. We see rebellion. Don't confuse what you see with what is. What is I love the story of a servant who was working a field. And in that field, he found a buried treasure, a pearl of great price. So what does he do? He goes home and he sells everything that he possibly has. He he gives up all of his life. It's all gone. And with that money, he buys the field. Now, what you see is a stupid field. You see a stupid decision. That he just lost everything in his life to buy a field. Oh, but what is? Don't you see the difference, church? What is is when he gets the field, he gets the, he gets the pearl of great price, which is worth more than anything you can comprehend. Uh, when the world looks at us, what they see is utter stupidity, foolery, abandoning everything that you are, and throwing it all into the glory of Christ? It doesn't make any sense, but what you see is not what is. What is is that as we throw ourselves into Christ, as we cross that bridge, as we burn all the other bridges of this world, we find in Christ a pearl of great price. Oh, what a, what a treasure He is. I will glory in my Redeemer whose precious blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on the judgment tree. So I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the power of sin and death, my only Savior, before the holy judge, the Lamb who is my righteousness, the Lamb who is my righteousness. Praise Him, church. Praise Him for being worth more than anything that you can imagine. Give Him glory and honor for He is worthy of every bit of it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that we have in Christ something so much better than this world. I pray, God, that we would receive this word today, that we would receive Your message And that we would put our hope and find our faith in the Messiah. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.